I call James Cartledge virtually. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And can I join you in sending heartiest congratulations to the Prime Minister and to Carrie on the birth of their son. It's wonderful news and I'm sure he'll bring them great joy in these difficult times. On coronavirus, surely we should not underestimate the significance of getting to what we hope is the peak of the outbreak without the NHS being overwhelmed. To do that, we've had to take the difficult but unavoidable decision of putting elective surgery on hold for many people. So can I ask, what more can we do to free up the NHS so that our constituents with cancer and other serious non-COVID conditions can start being treated again as soon as possible and in significant numbers? The both things is engagement. First Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I've been asked to reply on behalf of my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister. As members will have seen, as the Mr Speaker has uh, explained, the PM and his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, have announced uh, the birth of a healthy baby boy this morning. Both mother and baby are doing well, and I'm sure the whole House will want to join with me in sending congratulations and our very best wishes to them. Mr Speaker, the whole House will also want to join me in paying tribute to the 85 NHS workers and the 23 social care workers who have very sadly died from coronavirus. My deepest sympathies are with uh, their family and their friends at what is an incredibly difficult time, and we will continue to do whatever it takes to support them. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will also want to join me in wishing Captain Tom Moore, who has done so much raising £29 million for NHS charities together, a very happy 100th birthday tomorrow. His life of service for his country and his dedication to helping others is an inspiration uh, to us all. Can I thank uh, my honourable friend for his question? Uh, and of course, as he uh, notes, it's because we have taken the right measures at the right time that we have flattened the peak of this virus, we have prevented the NHS from becoming overwhelmed. The single two most important, the two single most important elements of this strategy that we've delivered, that has meant the NHS has had capacity to deal not just with COVID-19 patients, but other urgent treatments. And he's also right to say that as we move forwards towards a second phase, we must plan to ensure the NHS is able to deliver elective surgery and treat patients with other uh, conditions, uh, which is exactly what we're planning to do. I now go over to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I add my congratulations and the congratulations of the Labour Party, and I'm sure everybody in this House, to the Prime Minister and Carrie Simmons on the birth of their baby boy? Whatever differences we have in this House, Mr Speaker, as human beings, I think we all recognise the anxiety that the Prime Minister and Carrie must have gone through in these past few weeks, unimaginable anxiety. And so I really hope that this brings them incredible relief and joy. Can I join with the words of the First Secretary on those that have died on the front line and, and what he said about Captain Tom Moore, an inspiration to all of us? Mr Speaker, yesterday an important set of figures was published about the deaths from coronavirus. First, the deaths in hospital, currently at 21,678. That's the number that's published every day. On top of that, yesterday we saw the CQC figures for deaths in care homes for the two weeks ending last Friday. That was a figure of 4,343. And at the same time, the ONS figures came out for deaths outside of hospitals, outside of care homes, uh, and that was a figure up to the 17th of April of 1,220. There's a bit of a complication because of the different dates, 
but that makes a total to date, Mr Speaker, of 27,241 recorded deaths from coronavirus. And that's probably a, 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 an underestimate because of the time lag. Behind each number, of course, is a family shaken to its foundations. Now, six weeks ago, on the 17th of March, the government's chief scientific advisor indicated that the government hoped to keep the overall number of deaths from coronavirus to below 20,000. He said that would be good, by which, in fairness to him, he meant successful in the circumstances. And we're clearly already way above that number, and we're only part way through this crisis. And we're possibly on track to have one of the worst death rates in Europe. On Monday, the Prime Minister said in his short speech that many were looking at our apparent success in the United Kingdom. But does the First Secretary agree with me that far from success, these latest figures are truly dreadful? First Secretary of State. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Well, first of all, can I welcome the uh, various points of solidarity between uh, uh, our front benches in relation to, of course, the new baby boy uh, for the Prime Minister and Carrie Simmons, but also um, in relation to uh, care workers and NHS workers who have lost their lives. Uh, he's right that there is a challenge in deciphering the difference between the different figures because of the time lags in relation to the care home uh, deaths. Equally, I know it's something that uh, on all sides we have wanted to uh, deliver, which was clearer breakdown uh, and distinction between care home deaths uh, and deaths uh, in the NHS, uh, and I think that is progress. Um, he mentioned uh, the target of 20,000. Of course, um, this is an unprecedented uh, a pandemic, a global pandemic, and I think in fairness uh, we shouldn't criticise either the CMO or the Deputy CMO for trying to give some forecast into, uh, in response to the questions that many in this chamber and indeed in the media are calling for. Um, but the reality is we know a lot more about the virus, both domestically and internationally, than we did before. I absolutely share um, his, uh, I guess, our, our joint horror at the number of deaths tragedies each and every one. Uh, equally, I, I'm going to disagree with him that it is far too early to make international comparisons. If they are to be done, they should be done on, on a per capita basis. And I think uh, we're already seeing that there are different ways that deaths are measured, not just in the UK in the different settings, but across Europe and across the world. And of course, this is a very, as I've said, delicate and dangerous moment in this pandemic, which is why, with the greatest respect, I think we do need to wait until we've got further evidence from SAGE before moving to towards uh, a transitional phase uh, or a second phase uh, and it would be irresponsible right now and, uh, to start setting out in detail what proposals we might come up with in advance of having that uh, advice from SAGE. Kirstama. Thank you Mr Speaker. Can I be clear, I wasn't criticising the experts, I was pointing out the difference between what had been hoped for uh, and where we'd got to. I do um, welcome the clearer breakdown of figures which I think we're going to get from this afternoon um, onwards. I also welcome the fact that it appears, and I hope this is right, that the number of hospital admissions are going down uh, and the number of deaths from coronavirus in hospitals are going down. We've all been looking at those graphs and I hope uh, that that is continuing in the, in the right direction. But from yesterday's data, it appears that that just isn't the case in care homes. They show that deaths in care homes appear to have been rising even while hospital deaths have been falling. And that's on the back, as the First Secretary knows, of concern for some weeks from the front line about testing in care homes and the speed of testing, about concerns about protective equipment and arguments that it's been too slow. We've all heard from the front line in the care sector 
expressions of real anxiety about the situation that they find themselves in. So can the First Secretary explain why he thinks that coronavirus continues to spread so fast in the care sector? And returning briefly to something from last week, but I think the First Secretary has already touched on it, could he give us the up-to-date figures for the number of those that have died uh, on the front line in the health care staff and the number of social care workers? I raised it last week. I think he's given a figure, but just to confirm that. The Secretary. Well, can I thank the right honourable gentleman? I have already given those figures, um, and they are, of course, produced in the normal way, and he will be appraised of them just as he is in relation to the other figures. Um, it's absolutely right to say that there is a challenge in care homes. In fact, when SAGE produced their advice and when the Chief Scientific Advisor and the Chief Medical Officer uh, gave their uh, three-weekly review uh, several weeks ago now, it was made clear that we had made good progress overall in reducing the level of community uh, transmission, uh, but there were still challenges both in hospital settings but also specifically in care homes. Um, there are real challenges in care homes. The principal challenge in care homes unlike in the NHS setting where we've made uh, such good progress, is the uh, greater challenge from a decentralised basis in terms of having exercise and control over the ebb and flow of people into those care homes. That includes uh, residents, uh, it includes uh, care home workers, which sometimes work in different care homes, it also includes NHS workers, uh, and of course, friends and family. That is the single biggest challenge in terms of reducing transmission. But um, I hope I can reassure him that we have a, a comprehensive plan to ramp up the testing in care homes. The eligibility was changed yesterday by the Health Secretary to overhaul the way PPE is delivered to those in the front line. And we're also expanding the workforce by 20,000 uh, through a new recruitment campaign. Uh, but there is no doubting, Mr Speaker, and I will not uh, shy away from saying in front of the right honourable gentleman that this is a challenge, but it is a challenge that we must grip and that we can grip to make sure to make sure that those in care, we can get the numbers down in care homes, as we've seen in hospitals and as we've seen in the country at large. Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, just on the back of that answer, um, I think on the MAR programme on Sunday, the First Secretary said that deaths in care homes were falling in line of, with those in hospitals. That doesn't appear to be borne out by the figures, unless there are some figures we haven't seen. I just wonder if the First Secretary could take a moment to clarify that uh, when he next gets up. Um, yesterday was Memorial Day for all those who lost their lives at work. And it's really important that we honour and remember all those who died, whether from coronavirus or from anything else. But it's also important we redouble our commitment to protect all those at work. And that's why protective equipment for the front line is so crucial. Now, I recognise the challenge the government faces on this. I recognise that getting the right piece of equipment to the right place every time is very difficult. But lives do depend on it. And it is ten weeks since the Health Secretary declared that there was a serious and imminent threat to life. And you'd hope that by now things would be getting better, not worse. Yet, a survey of the Royal College of Physicians, published on Monday, reported that one in four doctors are still not getting the protective equipment that they need. And the RCP president was quoted in these terms, his words on Monday. It's truly terrible that PPE supply has worsened over the last three weeks rather than improved. Now, I know that's not where the First Secretary or the government want to be, with indications from the front line that things are worse, not better. 
but he must recognise this is a plea from the front line. So can I ask the, uh, the First Secretary, what's going on and how soon can it be fixed? First Secretary. Can I thank the right honourable gentleman? First of all, in relation to the care home data, obviously we've seen the latest data come out. There are some uh, uh, positive signs, but I, I think they're frankly within the margin of error, and we need to be very focused that there is a challenge in care homes, and we've got a plan in place to grip it. So there's no sugarcoating uh, that issue. Uh, I take exception with him suggesting that things are getting worse, not better. Uh, we, 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 that, that is not true overall. Uh, we have shown through the social distancing measures the overwhelming commitment to uh, them by the public uh, and our efforts to ramp up capacity, particularly ventilator beds, critical care capacity in the NHS, that the two central limbs of our strategy, which is to flatten the peak that we're going through, uh, which if we hadn't done, the death toll would have been uh, e even worse, uh, and also to make sure that the NHS ability to cope, those two critical elements of the strategy uh, have worked uh, to date, and it's absolutely important that we keep up uh, the effort on all of that. In relation to PPE, again, um, he must, when he addresses this, recognise that we face an international, a global supply shortage. Every country, when I pick up the phone as Foreign Secretary and I speak to leaders, foreign ministers, counterparts around the world, are facing this. And we are now the international buyer of choice. Uh, we have had 22 flights of PPE and ventilators from China just this month, in the last week. One, uh, over one and a half million masks from China, three flights from Turkey with gowns and face uh, protection, 140,000 gowns from Myanmar, and we brought in Lord Dayton, uh, Noble Lord uh, from the other place, uh, Lord Dayton, to ramp up our domestic uh, production, supply and distribution. So he's right, there is challenges on the front line. There's no minimising or sugarcoating any of uh, those creed occur that he mentioned. I feel uh, animated, inspired to do even better, but he needs to recognise on PPE uh, that there is a global supply shortage and we're doing absolutely everything we can uh, to make sure that those on the front line get the equipment that they need. Kirsten. Thank you. I do recognise the efforts that are going on. The First Secretary says he takes exception uh, to what I said about things worsening. I've tried not in this to base anything on my own personal opinion because I don't think that's helpful. What I was quoting was the Royal College of Physicians, those on the front line. So it's not my view, it's their view. And I've tried to be careful to stick to the data and the evidence rather than just coming up with an opinion. Um, can I ask the First Secretary about testing? Now, it's clear there's been an increase in testing in the last week and since we were last at the dispatch boxes, and I welcome that. And yesterday the government announced further extension and expansion of testing, and I welcome that as well. But there are obviously still significant problems. The government reported figures for Monday show a capacity to test of 73,000, which has gone up, it's the highest it's ever been, but only 43,000 actual tests were carried out. And when you drill down into the figures, only 29,000 people were actually tested. So the number of people tested was 29,000. Now last week the First Secretary said the problem was not capacity, but there was a lack of demand. I wasn't convinced, to be honest. But now we know demand's gone through the roof. We know sites were unable to cope with the numbers of people trying to book tests. So obviously demand isn't the problem. Yet on Monday, 30,000 tests that were available weren't used. Now I'll have to recognise that the 100,000 a day by Thursday was only ever a staging post. And perhaps the exact date doesn't matter as much as some would think. On the March the 12th, seven weeks ago, the Prime Minister made clear his plan and his plan was to ramp up daily testing to 250,000 tests a day. 
I agree with him on that. I think that's the scale we should be at. So can the First Secretary clarify that the 250,000 tests a day is still a government target? And if so, roughly when he thinks the government will hit that target? First Secretary. Can I, uh, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the right honourable gentleman. Just on this issue of things getting worse, um, I understand the point he wants to make about PP. It's an absolutely valid point, but I don't think it should be elided into the uh, broader critique that overall things are getting worse. As we come through the peak of this virus, we start to get deaths down. We've got to focus on uh, driving them down even further, and in particular, making sure uh, that we don't risk a second spike by increasing the transmission rate. And I think the right honourable gentleman could take time just to recognise our success on social distancing and critical care capacity, which has allowed that to happen. On testing, um, we now have 73,400 test uh, capacity every day. Uh, that is almost double uh, from the point at which we were at the dispatch box last week. Um, on daily tests carried out, the figure is now uh, 43,563, which is up from uh, well, over, well over double the 18,000 uh, from the point at which we were at last week. Um, in relation to capacity and demand, uh, when we talk about demand, when the NHS talks about demand, they're talking about the numbers of tests actually carried out, people not just being willing to come forward, but actually being able to come forward. And what we've done to make sure that we ramp up the testing as swiftly as possible um, is not just the extension and the widening of eligibility last week, but we've gone further and we've now said anyone who needs to go to work and says that uh, uh, they, they can't just work remotely uh, and they have symptoms, we will widen the eligibility to them. Uh, anyone over 65 with symptoms will also be able to uh, action those tests um, and of course it will be, and it comes back to his earlier point, available to all care homes, uh, all care home residents as well as staff, whether they're symptomatic or not. Uh, this is incredibly important. Uh, we are on track to make huge progress uh, and of course he's right to say that the 250,000 uh, target is still uh, an aspiration. I'm not going to put a date on it but the key point is the 100,000 milestone very important to me, we're making good progress, is only the first stepping stone towards testing, which is essential to the wider testing, tracking and tracing regime we'll need as we transition to the second phase. Can I just gently say to both front branches, we're really have, going to have to put the speed up so we'll not get anybody else in today. Keir Starmer. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. The First Secretary invites me to recognise the good work on social distancing and on critical care capacity. Can I do that unreservedly? It's been an amazing piece of work, particularly the ramping up of capacity, and, and I send my thanks to all of those that have been involved in it. I'd absolutely recognise it. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, the reason I've raised these issues is because they're vital to controlling the virus, protecting lives, uh, and so that we can get to an effective exit strategy. The public need to know what's going to happen in the next phase. And on exit strategy, I want to be absolutely clear with the First Minister. I am not asking for lockdown to be lifted. We support the government on lockdown and will continue to do so. So I'm not asking for that. I'm not asking for a time frame. The government says it can't give a time frame. I accept that and we support the government on that. I said I wouldn't ask for the impossible and I won't. What I'm asking for is the government to be open with the British people about what comes next. That's crucial for three reasons. We need their trust. Secondly, the government itself, the public, schools, businesses, trade unions need to plan ahead. And they're saying that loudly and clearly. Third, and frankly, we'd like to try and support the government's strategy when we know what it is. I think it's important for us to do so if we can. We can't do that if the government won't share its thinking. The Prime Minister said on Monday that he wanted maximum transparency. Will the, will the First Secretary give us some now, 
and tell us when the government will publish an exit strategy. First Secretary. Can I thank the right from the general, gentleman? Um, I'll just remind him that, um, as I set out on the 16th of April, SAGE advised against any changes to social distancing measures at that point. The reason is that uh, they would risk a substantial increase in the infection rate. SAGE is reviewing the evidence again in early March. Uh, he's asked for a, a time frame and a date. We can't give it until we have the SAGE evidence. Uh, if he thinks there's things that we could be announcing, whether it's along workplace, which you referred to, schools or, or otherwise, he, feel free to propose those things. Um, but I would just gently say that based on the advice and the evidence that we had from SAGE, which he said he wants to closely follow, uh, it would be very difficult for us to responsibly set out those proposals before we've had that subsequent advice from SAGE, both on uh, the rate of infection, the death rate, but also the measures it would be responsible to make. And that is why, with the greatest respect, and I understand he's trying to be constructive, we can't be pulled in to making uh, proposals in advance without SAGE opining. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, the, the problem with the First Secretary response is that it risks the UK falling behind. France, Germany, Spain, Belgium, New Zealand, Australia, Scotland and Wales have all published exit plans of one sort or another. The First Secretary said, well, well what are the proposals, what should they cover? If you look at those plans, as he's done and I've done, it's clear that there are common issues such as schools reopening, business sectors reopening. These are the issues that, if he wants me to put them on the table, I absolutely will, because they're clearly the issues that need to be um, addressed. There will be other issues, of course, but delay risks not only falling behind other countries, but also the successful four-nation approach so far. We want to support the government on an exit strategy. We want to support the four-nation approach so that we can all exit across the UK at the same time and hopefully in the same way. So I asked the First Secretary if the government will work constructively and openly with the opposition on the question of what happens at the next stage. First Secretary of State. Can I thank the right hon. Gentleman. We certainly will engage and I've enjoyed the telephone calls with opposition leaders, including himself. Um, but can I also just gently say that if um, he's suggesting that we can set out concrete proposals now, despite clear evidence and advice from SAGE, that uh, we should wait for their review of evidence in the next week or so, um, I would gently say uh, that, that that is the wrong thing to do. And if he thinks he knows better than SAGE and the scientists that have suggested that, he needs to explain it. He talked about the Scottish Government. The Scottish Government have not set out an exit strategy. I read through very carefully their 25-page document. It was eminently sensible and it was grounded in the five tests that I set out uh, on the 16th of April. He talked about some of the other European countries, but he will know, because I know he's an assiduous follower of the international evidence, that Germany is now having to think twice about easing up on the measures because of the risk of a second spike. This is exactly the risk that the Governor of the Bank of England referred to last week, that I referred to on the 16th of April, and that Sage and the scientists ha have been referring to. And I just, again, the, the, the Right Honourable Gentleman is trying to, and is succeeding in engaging in a very constructive way. He has a strong professional reputation when he was DPP for being guided by the evidence. That is much to his credit. Can I just gently say he shouldn't abandon that rigour now? So Desmond Sway. Will garden centres and nurseries be allowed to reopen in short order? First Secretary. I thank uh, my uh, right honourable friend for cutting straight to the chase. 
I uh, totally appreciate uh, the value of garden centres and nurseries. The current advice, um, as I've indicated from Sage, was that relaxing any of those measures, including the ones that he refers to, would risk damage to the public health, uh, our economy, and frankly the progress that we've made, the sacrifices so many have made, the, the, the lives that have been lost. But can I reassure him that they look specifically at garden centres, and we will continue, as I've indicated earlier, to keep the evidence on each individual measure under very close review. We go across to the leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford. Ian Blackford. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. And can I send my congratulations to the Prime Minister and to Carrie Simmons on the birth of their son and long life and happiness to the newborn. Mr Speaker, we are two months away from the deadline on approving an extension to the Brexit negotiations. Michelle Barnier has been clear the UK is refusing to engage seriously on a number of fundamental issues. The government is shamefully gambling our economic future with a no-deal Brexit in the middle of a health emergency. Why is the government threatening to isolate our economy at the end of the year during the biggest economic crisis of our time? First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman and uh, join with him in uh, uh, sending those messages of goodwill to Carrie Simmons and the Prime Minister and, of course, their new baby boy. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd be quite taking the word of Michel Barnier for the state of progress in the negotiations quite as readily and as uncritically as uh, the Honourable Gentleman has, but let's be very clear about it. Our position is unchanged. The transition period ends on the 31st of December. That is enshrined in law. There's no intention of changing that. And actually, uh, what we should do now, given the uncertainty and the, the, the problems and the challenges coronavirus uh, has highlighted for us, but also for our European friends, and I've worked extremely closely with our German, French and all of our other European partners, is focus on removing any additional uncertainty, doing a deal by the end of the year, and allowing both the UK and the European Union and all of its member states to bounce back uh, as we come through the coronavirus. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. What we should be doing is removing uncertainty and we should be putting a stop to these talks. We should be making sure that we protect our businesses and the failure by the First Secretary to rule out a no-deal Brexit should alarm us all. Mr Speaker, the World Trade Organisation predicts that world trade may fall by 32% this year. The IMF says the global economy will suffer its worst financial crisis since the 1930s and the OBR warns that the UK economy could shrink by... 35%. That means 2 million people are at risk of losing their jobs. Refusing to admit the inevitability of an extension isn't a tough or a clever negotiating tactic. It's a reckless and a foolish gamble. Will the Secretary of State embrace common sense and recognise the need for a Brexit extension, show some leadership, face down the hardliners in the Tory party, extend the Brexit transition and let us all get on with the job of tackling this health crisis together. First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman? So first of all, if his desire is to avoid more uncertainty, then the right thing for us to do is double down, get a deal by the end of this year. If his desire is to dig ourselves out of the economic challenges that we the European Union the world face, then the answer isn't to uh, engage in protectionism, but to do this deal, give a shot in the arm to businesses on both sides of the channel, and that is what we're absolutely wholeheartedly focused on doing, and we're doing it as one United Kingdom. Yeah. Rob Roberts. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The company programme run by the charity Young Enterprise provides the opportunity for young people to apply their skills in real-world situations, working in teams to set up and run their own Young Enterprise company. My right honourable friend agree with me that providing financial education in our schools is a vital way of empowering young people and ensuring that we're able to further our levelling up programme across the whole country when we come out of this crisis. Mr Secretary. Can I thank my honourable friend uh, for raising this excellent programme? Uh, he's absolutely right. A strong understanding of numeracy underpins a uh, young child's ability to manage money, for example, uh, by calculating percentages or uh, doing divisions. Uh, and this government's reforms have made a step change in progress for numeracy and literacy uh, for those young children. That needs to be backed up by the practical applications uh, and many organisations that support schools with financial education are adapting their programmes and uh, I think Young Monies is a, an excellent example of that. We go over to, over to Alan Dorans. Alan Dorans. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the First Secretary of State make a commitment today that when a vaccine for COVID-19 becomes available, the United Kingdom will take a leading role together with other nations to ensure it is distributed according to the needs of people across the world rather than on the basis of wealth? First Secretary. Well, can I thank uh, the Honourable Gentleman? He's absolutely right. And we, as the Health Secretary announced, we've had um, trials uh, announced very recently. We are taking a lead in the research and development. Uh, but he's also right to say, as my right honourable friend, the Development Secretary, announced, I think, earlier in questions, we're also contributing to uh, uh, Gavi uh, and CP, which is the international effort to make sure we can ramp up not just the international effort to find a vaccine, but to make sure that not only can we vaccinate um, all of the people here in the UK, but also in the most vulnerable and poorest countries around the world. And so I entirely agree with what he said. Robert Courts, we go over to Robert Courts. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The government has pulled out all the stops in providing a range of timely financial support for businesses. But both as the chair of the Small Business APPG and in West Oxfordshire, I hear reports of businesses that are being denied help by banks that are falling behind regulatory systems rather than concentrating on the urgent need to get cash out of the door to the businesses that need it. Would my right honourable friend agree with me that as the nation makes sacrifices unheard of in peacetime, it's also time for the banks to do their bit? First Secretary. Can I thank my honourable friend, pay tribute to all he's doing to champion small businesses. We want to help all businesses, small, medium and of course the large ones in Whitney and across the country get through this incredibly difficult period and bounce back with confidence as we defeat the coronavirus. Um, through the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, through the large business interruption loan scheme and the bounce back loan scheme, we're lending to businesses of all shapes and size. And the government has stepped up to the plate and he's absolutely right that we expect the banks to do the same too. We go across to Zara Sultana. Sarah Sultana. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. While working people are having to make huge sacrifices through this crisis, state support is available to big businesses that dodge taxes and pay millions to super rich executives and shareholders. Mr. Speaker, we should be bailing out the 99%, not the 1%. So will the government follow the likes of Denmark and stand up to big businesses by saying, if you want state support, you have to prohibit dividend payments and share buybacks and you can't be based in a tax haven. First Secretary. 
Okay, I thank the Honourable Lady. I, I have to say, I, I think if she looks at the package of measures that the, my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, has put in uh, place in the round, she will see that not only are we dealing with small businesses, we're also helping those larger businesses, and they're important too, they're large employers, and we're doing everything we can um, to support innovative firms, which will now benefit from the offer of £1.25 billion, uh, which is for high growth firms. So I think we should take, frankly, some of the partisan baggage out of this, focus on targeting the, the, the businesses that will create the growth which will drive us through this crisis and support the workers up and down this country who rely on those crucial businesses. We go across to Robert Largan. Robert Largan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The current crisis has shown just how important it is to have sufficient urgent care capacity in the NHS. I've been campaigning for new urgent care centres at both Stepping Hill Hospital and Thameside Hospital to help NHS staff provide world-class care to people in High Peak and across the region. Can the First Minister assure me that the government remains committed to building these badly needed new urgent care centres? Good Secretary. Well, can I thank my honourable friend for uh, the way he is uh, championing the NHS in the tenacious and doughty way. I'm delighted that Stockport NHS Foundation Trust have been allocated uh, close to 31 million for the provision of a new emergency care campus uh, at Stepping Hill, one of our 20 hospital upgrades. Um, and Thameside and Glossop Integrated Care NHS Foundation Trust have also been allocated over £16 million to provide emergency and urgent care facilities at Thameside General Hospital. Conservatives are the party of the NHS with more money, more hospitals, more doctors and nurses, and that's one of the reasons we've managed uh, through our critical care capacity to help protect the NHS from becoming overwhelmed by coronavirus. Wes Streeting. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I, um, first of all, offer my deepest thanks to first responders from the Metropolitan Police and the London Ambulance Service who uh, were greeted with a horrifying scene on Sunday night of an 18-month-old baby girl and three-year-old boy uh, brutally murdered in their own homes. There are no words of comfort that we can offer their grieving mother, but what the government can do is to do more to support people who are not safe in their own homes. I recognise the £3 million that's gone in to support children who witness domestic abuse and the £2 million that's gone in to support the domestic abuse hotline, but it's not enough and it's not quick enough. So in that spirit, can I ask the First Secretary of State to commit to providing the £75 million ring fence fund that the Shadow Home Secretary has called for, so that in these darkest of times for people who are trapped unsafe in their own homes, they know that support is available. First Secretary. Can I thank the Honourable Gentleman and first of all say uh, how appalled I am at the tragic case uh, in his constituency. I pay tribute um, to the frontline front line emergency responders, but I absolutely, in total solidarity with the Honourable Gentleman, uh, want to uh, pass my condolences to uh, the family around that uh, terrible case. And it sounds absolutely appalling. Uh, the police have been very clear that they will pursue perpetrators and anyone in immediate danger, and they should call 999. We're going through the coronavirus challenge. It's put pressure on the police, but they are there to do that incredible job that they do day in, day out. We do have the National Domestic Abuse Helpline staffed 24 hours a day. Um, we're supporting charities and uh, others supporting victims of domestic abuse with £750 million. Um, he makes some interesting points about what more we could do. Uh, we're constantly looking to reinforce 
and uh, strengthen the challenge of uh, the, the response to domestic abuse. And that he's right that there is a specific issue around it in relation to this uh, crisis. The domestic abuse bill had its second reading yesterday, um, and that will help uh, uh, take our response to the next level and also is an opportunity for him to make further proposals in due course. Charlie uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. And may I join in the congratulations to the Prime Minister and Carrie Simmons on the birth of their son. Mr Speaker, I was recently speaking with a lady who, very sadly, lost her husband in hospital to COVID-19. She spoke of the fantastic care given to her husband by the NHS staff. But she also spoke of the incredible support that she and her family received from those same NHS workers. Would my right honourable friend join me in congratulating the NHS staff not only for caring for those who are ill, but also for the wonderful support they give to their loved ones. Mr Secretary. Can I thank my honourable friend. Can I first of all pass on my very deepest condolences to the widow in his constituency? Uh, I, along with other ministers, have the grim task of reading out the total death toll at these press conferences, and I always walk away ashen-faced at the, what this must mean for individual families up and down the country. He's right to pay tribute to um, the NHS, uh, who are doing an amazing job, and we've, all of us, I think, across the House, pay tribute to them and the care workers uh, with our minute silence in particular yesterday. Um, but I think he's absolutely right also to say that they're not just there to treat the physical uh, condition, uh, whether it's of coronavirus or otherwise. Uh, they do an amazing job as providers of emotional support for patients and their families, and I think that's uh, something which is too easily overlooked as we come through this crisis. Going over to Garant Davis. Garant Davis. Mr Speaker, the UK opted out of the EU joint procurement of PPE, ventilators and medical equipment. Uh, can the First Secretary confirm that whether this was a political or commercial decision and take this opportunity to say that we will take any future opportunity to join any EU scheme that helps to safeguard supplies to our NHS in order to avoid any preventable deaths in our communities or in the NHS or care services? First Secretary. The Honourable Gentleman, I mean, as you'll know, because it's been made clear by the government and clarified uh, when, when it wasn't clear, uh, the original uh, issue was a failure of communication. We didn't get the original um, uh, uh, invitation to tender, if you like. Uh, it's very clear to us that the schemes in relation to the first batch of EU-wide procurement um, would not have made any significant extra uh, difference or added any value to what we're doing here. Uh, I can tell him that we, we, we will look at any future um, uh, procurement-wide initiatives, for example, on therapeutics. I can also just reassure him, uh, one of the things that we're doing is working very closely with our European partners on returns and repatriations, and that's something where we have taken advantage of EU-wide schemes if it can help us share costs. And that's the collaborative internationalist approach that the UK government takes. Mark Pritchard. The financial sector is vital to Shropshire's economy, employing thousands of people. And notwithstanding his earlier uh, response to my right honourable friend, can I ask that in any economic unlock, that in phase one, that garden centres and nurseries, seasonal nurseries, will be allowed to open, albeit with careful and considered strict guidelines. Mr Secretary. 
And I thank my honourable friend. Uh, second plea for garden centres and nurseries is absolutely right, and I understand entirely why it's so important, both economically but also socially, particularly for um, certain members of our community uh, for whom it will be an important means of getting outdoors and, and getting out of the lockdown. Uh, we will, uh, Sage has already considered it once. It will, I know it will consider garden centres and nurseries again, um, and I know he will expect us to continue to be guided by the evidence, but he has made his point in a powerful way, and it's certainly very uh, firmly registered that this is an important area for us to look at for the future. Alex Cunningham. Go over to Alex Cunningham. Thank you, Mr Speaker. There's never been sufficient nursery places to meet the extra demand created by the Child Care Act four years ago, and now things are set to get worse. I've received a huge number of emails from local nursery managers and workers angry at the government for failing to take action to protect early years workers during the coronavirus crisis because they're not entitled to access the furlough scheme. What will he do to sort this out and ensure that these nurseries still exist once the crisis is over? First Secretary. Well, this is a hugely challenging time for nurseries as it is for schools and, and other small businesses. The Chancellor has set out the range of support that's available. Um, it's widespread. Uh, it covers all sorts of different areas. But of course, in relation to nurseries or any other uh, sector that is finding the challenges uh, too much to bear as we go through this crisis, um, we will, of course, make sure we look at them afresh and see what further can be done. Sakib Bate. Over to Sakib Bate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'd like to begin by echoing the congratulations that have already been given to the Prime Minister and his fiance on the birth of the baby boy. I hope they're all in good health. Mr. Speaker, over the weekend, there was a double stabbing in my constituency. In light of this, will my right honourable friend join me in calling on the Police and Crime Commissioner to reverse his decision to close the local police station? And what reassurances can he give the House that as we emerge from this lockdown, we are protecting our communities from the scourge of knife crime? First Secretary. I thank my honourable friend, and it's a, a tragic but timely warning that uh, some of the uh, persistent social challenges that we face around knife crime or, or, or any other kind of crime will persist and not just stay at home because of coronavirus, although overall the level of crime has come down. Can I uh, pay my very deepest sympathies with the families of the victim in his constituency. Um, and can I reassure him we've committed to recruiting 20,000 more police officers over the next three years. We're making it easier for the police to exercise stop and search powers. Uh, we're ensuring that more per perpetrators go to prison and for longer. Um, he will know that it's for PCCs to decide on how and where to spend their resources, but uh, I pay tribute to him for being a, a, a tenacious and doughty champion for the criminal, uh, the, the crime issues and the policing that needs to take place in his constituency. We go over to Alison Thulis. Alison Thulis. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Many businesses in my constituency and around the UK shut their doors on public health advice, and they're now finding that insurers are refusing to pay out on business interruption policies. So I ask again, will the UK government intervene and stand behind these claims so that no business loses out for doing the right thing? First Secretary. And I thank the Honourable Lady. Um, I, I don't, don't think it's uh, uh, the right thing to do to stand behind all of the claims, but we certainly do and continue to liaise with the insurance industry to make sure, as far as is uh, legally and practically possible, the, they're showing the flexibility uh, as people, and particularly the uh, consumers of those insurance policies, come through this very difficult time. We go over to David Mundell. David Mundell. Mr Speaker, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to connect uh, with you uh, this week. I finally escaped from the Zoom waiting room, I, and uh, in so doing, I can uh, pass my congratulations to uh, Carrie Simmons and the Prime Minister on the birth uh, of their son. 
Uh, Mr. Speaker, I have a large number of haulage companies uh, in my constituency, and I'm sure the First Secretary will recognise uh, that lorry drivers are key workers uh, during this crisis, transporting uh, goods uh, across our United Kingdom. However, many uh, have struggled to access hot food out with uh, their cabs, even to access toilet and shower facilities. So can the First Secretary uh, ensure that we're doing all that we can to support lorry drivers as they carry out their important duties during this crisis? First Secretary. I thank my right honourable friend and say it's always good to see him, uh, uh, even via Zoom, uh, or especially via Zoom. Uh, can I? <laughs> can I thank all of the HGV and delivery drivers for all that they're doing in the country to keep us going? And I think our. I think across the House we'd probably agree that our view and our definition of key workers has changed as we come through this crisis and there is an appreciation of people uh, doing those gritty jobs uh, day in day out and quite the extent to which we rely on them. All motorway service stations in England currently remain open to road users. Um, that is why the Transport Secretary uh, is continuing, uh, based on the concerns he's rightly raised, to work with motorway service operators to ensure as many facilities uh, within those individual service stations remain open as possible to make sure HGV drivers can take a break and use uh, whatever facilities they need uh, before they go back to work. And he, he raises a, a, an excellent point. Dave Dugan, go across to David Dugan. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Chancellor said of his COVID-19 response that we will not leave you behind, we all stand together. He then delivered a financial package that did leave behind hundreds of my constituents in Angus and thousands more across these islands by a government who will refuse to introduce a universal basic income, just like my constituent in our growth, who could not be furloughed by his former employer, and because of Treasury rules, neither can he be furloughed by his new employer. So now, after 44 years of working, he's been cut adrift as collateral by this government. What is the First Secretary's advice to my constituent? Well, can I thank the Honourable Gentleman um, uh, and just say to him, I, I, we don't support universal ba basic income, mainly because uh, given our precious resources at such a challenging time, it wouldn't target it at those who need it the most. Um, in total, Scotland will receive a cash boost of over £3 billion to tackle the coronavirus. Um, so the financial support from the UK government is going there. That's on top of the UK military support with things like mobile testing and the airlifting of patients from some of the island communities in Scotland. Uh, and we're also expanding testing capacity right across the UK with centres recently opened in Glasgow, Aberdeen and Edinburgh. We'll get through this crisis and we'll do so as one United Kingdom. Deb Cheryl Gillam. Deb Cheryl. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Can I associate myself with the remarks of the First Secretary and send congratulations to the Prime Minister and Carrie? Research from the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Autism found that before the coronavirus crisis, more than two in three autistic adults were not getting the support they needed. Sadly, in some areas, emergency powers to ease duties under the CARE Act have had to be triggered. Can my right honourable friend guarantee that autistic people will not be disproportionately affected by these changes? And will he publish which councils have to resort to emergency powers? Third Secretary. 
And I thank my right honourable friend. She raised a really important point. And of course, we want to make sure um, all autistic children or any other children with special needs uh, going through this terrible crisis uh, are as protected as we possibly can. I think when it comes to looking at the future arrangements for schools uh, on top of the key workers, uh, we've got to make sure that we do as much as we can to protect vulnerable uh, children and particularly those uh, with um, particular needs. Uh, she talked about the funding going through to local authorities. Allow me to take that back, uh, speak to both the uh, Education Secretary but also um, the Community Secretary and make sure that we can come back with a specific answer on the particular points she raised. Last and final question. We now go over to Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. Sir Geoffrey. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, could I, on behalf of the Democratic Unionist Party, echo uh, and uh, pass on our congratulations to the Prime Minister and Carrie Simmons on the birth of their son? Um, the headline in this morning's Belfast Telegraph uh, speaks about uh, deaths uh, for people who are not infected by the virus people who have not been attending hospital and who desperately needed treatment. Uh, will the First Secretary advise us of the measures the government intends to take to address this issue and to ensure that more people are able to attend for treatment, including cancer patients? Mr. Secretary. Can I thank uh, the Honourable Gentleman and uh, pay tribute to uh, all the work he is doing and indeed the Northern Ireland Executive at this difficult time. He's absolutely right to raise the challenge uh, within the NHS uh, more generally of dealing not just with COVID-19 but the wider conditions that people have. The uh, Chief Medical Officer has made it very clear we have the capacity, the plans that we put in place and that we delivered through the Nightingale hospitals, uh, the ventilators, the critical care capacity is in place not just to deal with coronavirus but also to deal um, with uh, uh, other non-COVID priorities, whether they're urgent or whether they're um, other forms of, of treatment in relation to cancer or otherwise. And I'm certainly very willing to, to work with the Health Secretary uh, and the Northern Ireland Secretary to make sure in relation to any particular challenges faced uh, in Northern Ireland that we can deal with them and address them. Uh, and it's absolutely crucial as we go through this crisis that that NHS capacity is protected. And that's one of the reasons we introduced the social distancing measures and why it's so important that they've been so effective. That is the end of Prime Minister's questions.